Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. Hey, what is up, y'all? Welcome to this week's episode of Catholics with Bibles. I am in extremely good mood today, partly because here in Austin, Texas, it's a high of 87 degrees today, and that feels like home. I'm still scarred from the winter storm, apparently, because now I'm just like, never be cold again. Um, But I'm also very excited about this episode because we're diving a little bit deeper into uh, this evaluation of Pope St. John Paul II on the Sermon on the Mount, right? He, he, He who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And in this episode and in this section of the Theology of the Body, JP2 is going to look at some wisdom literature, which is always fun to kind of look at the Old and New Testament together, kind of a canonical criticism, right? Which means you you interpret a passage by looking at the Bible as a whole and not just the book in and of itself. Um, and we're, we're talking about you know a few different things as well. So like, you know, this idea of adultery in the heart, does it apply to husbands and wives as well? If so, in what way? Um, kind of, and, and just diving a little bit deeper into what this means. We talked a lot about last week, and this week's going to be kind of sort of the last week we're going to talk about it. Anybody who's read Theology Body knows, you know, JP2 kind of goes like in a circle where, you know, he's going to talk about one thing, cover some ground, and then next week he's going to backtrack a little bit and then cover some ground, then backtrack a little bit and cover some ground, and he just kind of does the same thing. Uh, But he's brilliant, and he's way smarter than I am. He's way holier than I am. Well, he's a saint now. But even his life, way holier than I am. So I'm just going to take his lead and just trust he knows what he's doing. You know what I'm saying? Um, So... As always, we're going to start with our Greek word of the day. So our Greek word of the day today is ha-blepon. So ha-blepon comes from the verb uh, blepo, which is I look. Ha-blepon is, is the Greek we actually see in the Sermon on the Mount is, is the one who looks, right? So we know that the verse we've been looking at is he who looks at a woman uh, you know, with desire, the reductive desire, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So ha-blepon comes out of verb blepo, which is just to look. And I always thought it was kind of just a funny word, like blepo. Like, I don't know. There's some words that I just are kind of fun to say. And I don't know why, side tangent, you're going to learn something about me today. I think the most, like one of the most fun words to say in English, in English is the word loaf. Like, it's just such a fun word to say, loaf. I don't know. I hope you're saying it right now, like in your car or wherever you're listening to this, like loaf. I don't know. It's just a fun word to say. Anyway, I feel like the same about blepo. Uh, it's just kind of a goofy word to say, but it means, it means to look or I look. Uh, or the one who looks, Hoblepon. Um, so once again, JP2 looks at this, he kind of zooms in on just one part. It's the, the looks to desire, right? Looks to desire. And so and once again, we're, we're kind of brought back to this threefold concupiscence, right? Um, it's a delight to the eyes, right? And so we know that, you know, when Eve looked at the fruit, you know, she saw you know, vision. She saw that the fruit was uh, a delight to the eyes, you know, the desire to make one wise and uh, to have a life, right? Or it's knowledge of good and evil. Um, and so then we look at First John. We talked about this last week too. First John, uh, that free full, the threefold concupiscence, the threefold lust, you know, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and uh, the pride of life. And it's all for JP2. He, he sees this as all kind of rooted in vision, right? And rooted in vision. And he, JP2 then kind of puts this in context once again, right? Because, Jesus' initial audience in the Sermon on the Mount are namely all Jews, right? And Jews that would have been fairly familiar uh, with what's called wisdom literature. Um, and I say fairly familiar because there are 
there were different sects of Judaism, right? And so the Pharisees believed in the Torah, but also believed in certain wisdom literature and certain prophetic writings and all these things. And then there were also the Sadducees who only believed in the first five books of the Torah, of the Old Testament, right? The Torah. Um, and they didn't, they discarded wisdom literature. They discarded the prophets. They discarded the writing, all these things, right? They discarded all of it. And then there's the, the Essenes who uh, included a, a lot in what they uh, considered divine uh, revelation in so far as written word. Um, they actually had, they included books that we actually don't include um, in, like first and second Enoch, right? Um, if you haven't heard of those, those books, Fun fact, those are books, um, and, and they're very just fascinating. So the church, uh, when it was first considering what books belonged in the canon proper, uh, it considered First and Second Enoch, um, and it even considered um, other New, New Testament-type letters as well. Um, but once again, the church, guided by the Holy Spirit, decided that these uh, either weren't Scripture, I mean, for various reasons, right? Um, but First and Second Enoch, um, they're kind of apocalyptic-esque writings. Um, and they're fascinating to read just to understand more about what Jews of Jesus' day, before, a little bit before Jesus' day, as first Enoch, kind of thought about um, in regards to like their literature, their lifestyle, their morality, and all these things. And so JP2 kind of reminds us that this is the, the mix of audience that Jesus was listening to. But Arguably, even if they didn't consider the wisdom books canon, like inspired by God, they probably still would have read or heard of them. So the wisdom literature, it's a section of the Old Testament, and there's books like the Wisdom of Solomon, right? Song of Songs is, is wisdom literature. The Psalms actually are, are kind of considered wisdom literature, right? Um, things like Sirach, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of books that are considered wisdom literature. And a, a good way to think of this wisdom literature as a section of the Old Testament it's basically taking the law, the Torah, the first five books of uh, the Pentateuch, or the, the, uh, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, um, and it's applying them, right? So it's, it's kind of the Old Testament's moral theology, if you will. And so you have, you have books um, that talk about, you know, uh, why murder is wrong or, you know, why you shouldn't steal or caring for the poor and the widow, um, you have a book like the book of Proverbs, right? Which is just, I mean, you should, if you haven't read Proverbs, you should read Proverbs. Um, and it's, it's, it's fascinating. I think it's hard for us to read sometimes because in reading those Old Testament books, it's giving a lot of advice, right? Practical life advice. But it's giving also advice on like to shepherds and to farmers and people who lived in the Middle East, right? Like 2,000 years ago. And so we read it and we're just like, I have literally no idea what you're talking about whoever wrote Proverbs, um, and, and that's okay, but it just, but there are still nuggets in there that, man, you read it, and you're like, dude, like, yeah, I still really struggle with that, or like, I totally see this in society now, and it was, it was there over 2,000 years ago, too, so the wisdom literature also, the reason we bring it up here, gives us insight into this idea of desire, right, the desire that JP2 zooming in on, and so the first passage that JP2 points out is uh, Sirach 9.8. So in Sirach 9, 8, we read this. Turn away your eyes from a shapely woman and do not look intently at beauty belonging to another. Many have been misled by a woman's beauty and by its passion is kindled like a fire. Never dine with another man's wife nor revel with her at wine lest your heart turn aside to her and in blood you be plunged into destruction. So you can kind of see that, you know, the law 
thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife uh, from the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is, is being applied practically here, right? So, you know, it's to say, turn away your eyes from a shapely woman. We talked about this in the last podcast too, right? The, the custody of the eyes, being able to, one, you know, acknowledge when a beautiful woman or if you're a, if you're a woman, uh, an attractive man comes into your vision, but being able to control your eyes, right? To divert your eyes so as not to let your soul and your heart be led to potential lustful thoughts, right? Um, and so, uh, the, once again, Sirach, the author of Sirach here, giving some advice, like just a practical advice of, and you can kind of tell here and in other parts of wisdom literature too, the, the authors are trying to dive deeper into what the law actually means, like morally, not just the letter of the law. And it doesn't get quite to the new ethos that we're going to talk about here in a little bit um, that, that Christ does in the Sermon on the Mount. But it is getting deeper, right? It's getting deeper. This is practical advice. Like, hey, don't stare at a, 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 a you know, shapely woman, as, as he says. Why? Because it could lead you potentially to adultery, right? And we, we don't want that. It's against, the, against one of the commandments. Um, and so the next uh, verse that uh, JP2 zooms in on is, is 26, uh, 15 through 18. So we read this. A modest wife adds charm to charm, and no balance can weigh the value of a chaste soul. Like the sun rising in the heights of the Lord, so is the beauty of a good wife. In her well-ordered home, like the shining lamp on the holy lampstand, so is a beautiful face on a stately figure. Like pillars of gold on a base of silver, so are beautiful feet with a steadfast heart. So, JP2 brings up this next passage in particular because... I think a lot of times when we read wisdom literature, I don't think, I know, <laughs> by reading wisdom literature, a lot of times women are, are kind of portrayed as objects of desire for a primarily male audience, right? So a lot of times I think people poorly misinterpret some passages of the Old Testament and of wisdom literature in particular as saying women are evil, that they're they're, you know, they're there to seduce men. And you see some, some of this in um, some non-Catholic uh, Protestant denominations, not all, but some, uh, they're dying away now, but they're still there, where they use these passages to kind of justify male dominance in, in the family and male dominance uh, in the church. Um, and so they use this to kind of justify like, basically keeping women down um, and you know, having an imbalanced order in the home, uh, which the Catholic Church has never held, right? Um, you know, we're we're going to look later on down the road at Ephesians and all those kind of passages. Um, but you need to say just for now, not what we're talking about. So JP2 points out this passage is because it's showing, you know, the beauty of women, like even in the old, even wisdom literature, like a good wife is amazing. Like the, the author of Sirach acknowledges this, right? And you also have in Proverbs too, um, the proverb of like the good wife, right? Uh, the good woman. And so we eventually though get to this passage from uh, Sirach 23, 16 through 22. And so it's a little bit longer, but, but it's very, very good. And once again, this is a passage that JP2 wants us to zoom in on. Once again, going back to this idea of desire. The soul heated like a burning fire will not be quenched until it is consumed. A man who commits fornication with his near of kin will never cease until the fire burns him up. To a fornicator, all bread tastes sweet. He will never cease until he dies. A man breaks his marriage vows, says to himself, who sees me? Darkness surrounds me, and the walls hide me, and no one sees me. Why should I fear? 
The Most High will not take notice of my sins. His fear is confined to the eyes of men. He does not realize that the eyes of the Lord are 10,000 times brighter than the sun. They look upon all the ways of men and perceive even the hidden places. Before the universe was created, it was known to him. So it was also after it was finished. This man will be punished in the streets of the city, and where he least suspects it, he will be seized. So it is with a woman who leaves her husband and provides an heir by a stranger. So what's this passage kind of saying? Well, one, it's going back to this idea of desire as a burning fire, a fire that, that kind of consumes you. We're gonna, just in a second, I'm going to read a, uh, a quote from JP2 talking about this. But also, it, it's talking about when JP2 talks about this as well. This idea of when you're when that fire, that passion consumes you, it basically it blinds you to everything, right? You don't worry about good, bad, you know, you don't worry about God because you're just you're totally consumed by this passion, this, this overwhelming passion that's like a fire. And so there's a, a quote here I want to share with you um, from, from Pope John Paul II. He says, The comparison between concupiscence of the flesh and fire, talking about this passage, flaring up in the man. It invades his senses, arouses his body, draws the feelings along with itself, and in some way takes possession of the heart. Such passion, springing from carnal concupiscence, suffocates the deepest voice of conscience in the heart. It suffocates the sense of responsibility before God. This suffocation is made especially evident in the biblical text just quoted. There remains, on the other hand, an external modesty in relation to human beings, or rather an appearance of decency, that manifests itself as fear of the consequences rather than of the evil in itself. He goes on. Suffocating the voice of conscience, passion brings restlessness of the body into the senses. It is the restlessness of the outer man. Once the inner man has been reduced to silence and passion has, as it were, gained freedom of action, passion manifests itself as an insistent tendency towards satisfying the senses and the body. So once again, he says, you know, this passion suffocates the deepest voice of conscience, right? And I love this line. It manifests fear of the consequences rather than of evil in and of itself. And I think that is so insightful, Right. Because I think a lot of the times, whenever, especially you see this in kids a lot, but even adults, when they say, oh, you know, don't do that, that's bad. And, you know, they, they have their moment where I think parents, a lot of times we see this in our kids, where they know that something's like they shouldn't do, right? You can see the wheels turning like in their heads, especially as little kids. And like, you know, is this thing I want to do? Is it worth the consequences of this action, right? They're not sitting there thinking like, oh, this thing that my parents told me not to do is bad in and of itself. Or like disobeying my parents is bad in and of itself. Therefore, I shouldn't do it. No, they're like, okay, is this worth the consequences, right? Is this, is this potential, is this temporary pleasure worth the consequences? And I think even adults, when we're caught up in passion, like JP2 says, we can think like this. We fall into this trap, right? Where either one, we think, you know, oh, you know, it's a secret sin. Nobody's going to see this. Nobody's going to find out. You know, nothing's going to happen. Um, or you're like, oh, you know, is this, you, we weigh the pros and cons, right? But if a thing is wrong in and of itself, we should hate it, right? Our hearts should be, should reject it, should shun it because it's evil in and of itself, right? And this is talking about the desire, the heart, fornication in general, right? And so then the, just the next page over, JP2, he kind of concludes with the saying of, the man whose will 
is occupied with satisfying the senses, does not find rest, nor does he find himself. But on the contrary, he consumes himself. Remember this hermeneutic of get, that man finds himself in and through a sincere gift of self. But, you know, JP2 kind of going back to, if our only thought is satisfying our senses, right, satisfying our passions, if that consumes everything we do and say, then you will never find yourself. In fact, you will never find peace. You will always be searching for carnal pleasure, right? If, you, if you're prone to laziness, you're always looking for that next chance to relax, right? If you're, looking, if you're consumed by, you know, that uh, disordered sexual urge, you're constantly consumed by your desire to watch pornography, your desire to use somebody else, your desire um, to, you know, do whatever it is to fulfill this sexual urge, right? It's, but it's, you know, sexual urge needs to be oriented towards self-gift, right? And so this is when the heart, remember last time we talked about the heart uh, and uh, the biblical meaning isn't just like the will, it's, it's everything in you. It's who you are in and of yourself, right? So it's this reconquering of the heart that we, we, have, to, that we have to dive into, right? And so um, this, this desire, desire is linked to vision, which is linked to concupiscence, right? And this concupiscence is, is this, you know, reduction. He's, he's going back to this. We've talked about this before. Namely, the look, right, the look to use somebody in a reductive sense, right? Desire in and of itself is not bad in and of itself. The sexual urge is not bad in and of itself. But it's only when you look at somebody and you don't see them, you see what their body can do to satisfy you, right? So you reduce them as a thing to be used rather than a person to be loved. It is then that desire is in the reductive sense and therefore evil. And so the, the next kind of the quote here is kind of describing concupiscence as desire, what, what concupiscence does in this situation. So JP2 says, concupiscence removes the intentional dimension of the reciprocal existence of man and woman from the personal perspectives of communion, which are proper to their perennial and re reciprocal attraction. Reducing this attraction and, so to speak, driving it towards utilitarian dimensions. We talked about this before. In whose sphere of influence one human being makes use of another being using her only to satisfy his own urges, right? And so this is disordered love. This is disordered passion for, for JP2. And that's when desire turns haywire, right? That's when desire goes wrong. And so the next thing that you know JP2 dives into is you know, can this be applied to husbands and wives, right? Can this be applied to husbands and wives? And he, and he has two different readings, if you will, of this phrase, you know, he who looks at a woman has already committed, uh, in order to desire her in a lustful way, has already committed adultery in, her heart, in his heart. And so there's two readings. The first reading is if we divine, define adultery, purely in the Old Testament, in the, in the old ethos. So what do I mean by ethos? What does JP2 mean by ethos? So ethos is kind of just the, the underlying sense of morality within a given like culture or time. And so the ethos of the Old Testament was more inclined to this letter of the law, right? Um, and Christ bringing the new ethos, right? The ethos of the heart, which we're going to dive into more in the coming weeks. Um, 
And so it's the, it's the kingdom ethos, the ethos of the resurrection, the ethos of Christ, the ethos of kingdom, uh, of, of truly what it means to have a pure heart. And so the first reading is the old ethos, if you will. And namely that is, well, what is adultery? Well, adultery is when you uh, are physically with someone who is not your spouse, right? Uh, and, and you come together in the conjugal act with somebody who's not your spouse uh, and therefore committing a- adultery with them. Um, in particular, if they're somebody else's spouse or if you have a spouse, um, then it's you know a higher degree. But even if neither of you are married, it's still considered adultery because they are not your spouse. And this is, once again, that kind of view of, spouses as not property right but as in like oh they, it's it's more of just a literal sense of this is my spouse i you know we can do what we want sexually with the other um and so with this first reading no you can't uh commit adultery in the heart with your spouse because well they're your spouse right they they they're yours if you can have sex with them physically then clearly you should be able to look at them and and desire them right um and JP2, though, wants to bring this a little bit deeper. And this one gets in the second reading. So this second reading, he actually says, well, no, you actually can commit adultery in your heart even with your spouse. What does he say? He says, adultery in the heart is not committed only because the man looks in this way at a woman who is not his wife, but precisely because he looks in this way at a woman. Even if he were to look in this way at the woman who is his wife, he would commit the same adultery in his heart. And that is a really heavy thing to think about. So the problem for JP, for Pope John Paul II, and for Christ, right, who he's interpreting, isn't the fact that, he's, that you think about a woman who's not your, not your spouse, but it's the fact that you're reducing someone else as a thing to be used, right? It's the fact that you're reducing another person as an object of your pleasure, right? So you, a husband or a wife can commit adultery in the heart with their spouse. Why? Because if you look at your spouse and you remove them from their bodies and you only see their bodies as a thing to be used for your own satisfaction, you commit adultery in the heart. It's actually the, the translator note here. Um, you know, JP2, when this was, he, these are general audiences, right? So this is, it wasn't private. It wasn't just a book. Uh, he, and he, when this particular uh, verse was read out loud, it, it hit the papers apparently. It says, a man committed such adultery in the heart, even with his own wife, if he treats her only as an object for the satisfaction, satisfaction of drives. And as a translator's note here, he says, when this statement by John Paul II was first quoted in the Italian press, it led to an uproar that was picked up also in the international press, including major U.S. papers and networks. Most reporters failed to grasp the difference between desire in the positive sense, which we've talked about, and reductive concupiscent desire, right? In this, in the immediately following paragraph, right, JP2 points out that a merely psychological or sexological understanding of sexuality will not allow one to grasp this difference, right? So namely, when this quote, right, name a, a man can commit such adultery in the heart with his own wife if he treats her only as an object for the satisfaction of his drives, when that quote like hit the papers, the world like freaked out, right? Um, you know, it says, oh, you know, the Catholic Church is just a bunch of Puritans, you know, you can never have sex, they think sex is evil, blah, 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 blah. Um, but literally in the next passage, 
JP2 talks about like, yeah, but like I say this, but you have to have the nuanced understanding of desire. What do I mean by desire? Like, like we've said before, desire in of itself, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. It's a gift from God to desire your spouse. But it's when that desire is shifted into a utilitarian desire, a, a reductive desire. That's when sin enters the picture. That's when we have to say, you know, Lord, forgive me. This is not just a thing to be used, but a person to be loved, right? That the two may become one flesh, truly. And that takes two persons, right? Not just two bodies. Two bodies can't come together and truly be one. It takes two persons to do that. And so this is when the reconquering of our heart is so essential, right? Especially as, as married people, or as, uh, if you're discerning marriage, right? Or if you're, you're engaged, um, we have to focus on not just the letter of the law, right? Here's the deal. For Christians, the Ten Commandments are, an, are a given, right? They're supposed to be a given. Of course we do those things. Of course we don't obey the uh, worship of the gods. Of course we don't desire other men's wives. Of course we don't desire other men's goods and want to steal. Of course we don't do all these things. Therefore, when Christ on the Sermon on the Mount raises the bar to the next level, that's when he penetrates into the heart. That is what we have to do. We have to reconquer our hearts as Christians because that's where everything starts. You know, Jesus talks about this too. He says, it's not what enters the body that makes one unclean, but what exits the mouth because that comes from the heart, right? All external actions that you do are fruits of your thoughts and desires. There's this term in philosophy is as you are, so you act, right? Why does a tree grow fruit? Well, it's because it's a fruit tree. As it is, so it acts. Why does a dog bark? Well, it's a dog and dogs bark. So that's why it barks because it's a dog. Why do humans think? Well, because we're humans and it's in our very nature to think. So as you are, so you act. And we have to be very careful because you know, I had a philosophy professor one time, Father Andy. Um, he's he this way in class one time. It's like, what distinguishes us from animals, right? Because, you know, a lot of people in, in the secular world, they love having sex with everybody they can. They love drinking and eating whatever they want. And they love gathering in large crowds and, you know, clustered clubs. And he says, he's like, well, a rat can do those things too, right? Uh, rats, they live in sewers. They have sex with other rats, they eat whatever they want, even if it's not good for them. And they love to be in like in large clumps of other rats, right? So if our lives are defined as a rat, if, we, if the only things we want to do and do, a rat can do as well, man, our lives are shallow and sad. It's not a fully human life. We have to reconquer our hearts because we cannot give of ourselves unless we have control of ourselves we have to reconquer our hearts and that takes grace it's not something that you can just do by you know lacing up your bootstraps and getting to work no we have to pray for the grace to have control of our bodies yes but also of our hearts and our minds and so this desire of the heart we have to beg the holy spirit to conform our hearts that our desires may change. When you read the lives of the saints, when you read their stories and read their biographies or autobiographies, you it's, it's crazy because you see really that 
how far you have to go in a lot of sense because their desire, right, for union with Christ is, is literally what drives everything. It's, it's, it's the foundation. And we have to pray that our hearts may be conformed to theirs, to, 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 to Christ, right, but like theirs. And so may we pray that the Holy Spirit gives us the grace we need to have custody of our hearts, custody of our minds, and custody of our bodies. Until next time, y'all. God bless. All right, y'all. So we are chugging along with our reading of Man and Woman, He Created Them. I hope you're enjoying this mini-series. Don't forget to subscribe, give us a review, talk about us with your friends and family, and we'll see you next time on Catholics with Bibles. God bless.